The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we are in, if you can turn to Acts chapter 19, if you have a Bible, if you'd like to use your notes in the back, and that's helpful for you. Today's sermon is called Resistance to Biblical Ministry, and we're going to actually cover Acts 19 to 21 to 41. It is a big chunk of scripture. But it's one story, one very specific story recorded by Luke of what happened in the ministry of the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. This is about 55 A.D., and Paul had been in Ephesus. We already saw the beginning part of chapter 19, first 20 verses, where Paul's been in Ephesus ministering in this pagan city for over two years now. That's the longest he'd been in any city as he went out church planting. Usually it was like a few weeks, got chased out of town, two months probably around there. In Thessalonica, got chased out of town, was never allowed back again. Uh, Other times maybe he stayed a little longer, a few more months, Philippi and other places. Sometimes it doesn't tell us how long he was. But it did tell us that when he was in Corinth just prior to this, he was there for a year and a half, which was the longest he was at any pagan city where he planted a church. And in 18 months, the Apostle Paul was able to lay a pretty solid foundation and then after that he has the opportunity on his third missionary journey to go to Ephesus which was a major city in that part of the world it was right on the coast of the sea there and it was a major thoroughfare going from west to east Uh, you could access Greece uh, you could access eventually Rome to the west but then also going back to Jerusalem headquarters the other direction it was a cosmopolitan city uh, there were people coming and going from all, literally all over the world to Ephesus at all times. They, uh, it was a world-renowned city. It was a large city of over 200,000 people in Paul's day. All kinds of different religions were there. There was a Jewish hub there. There was a Jewish, massive Jewish synagogue there. Uh, mostly there was paganism, Greek and Roman paganism, with temples and idols strewn all over the city. That was the dominant worldview and religion, the worship of the Roman Caesar, as well as a multiplicity of Greek gods and had temples accordingly, the most prominent one being in the city of Ephesus. Their main god or goddess was named Artemis. That's actually a female name, Artemis. I don't know if anybody here has named any of their daughters Artemis. Don't. Uh, If you have, sorry, it's too late. Go by their middle name. But Artemis is actually a female name. And Artemis, according to the Ephesians, was the sister of Apollo. She was a Greek goddess. She was the goddess of fertility and life. So they said. They believed she was real. We know that she wasn't real. It's a fake god, mythological god, but they believed Artemis was real. They worshipped her. They prayed to her. They sought favor from her. They had a statue uh, that apparently at one point fell out of heaven and landed there wherever in Ephesus, and it was like a black meteorite piece of stone. Then somebody apparently carved that stone into the likeness of a female woman. And then they put it in a shrine or temple and began to worship it. And that became the goddess of the city of Ephesus. They built a massive temple to this goddess with, I don't know, 120 pillars or something like that. Uh, It actually was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The temple to Artemis. That's a good trivia question. What were the seven wonders of the ancient world? We do know that one of the pyramids were, and 
Nebuchadnezzar's hanging Babylonian gardens. Well, so was the temple to Artemis. It was so massive, world-renowned. They said it had like over 120 massive marble pillars that sustained it. And some of these pillars were uh, donated from emperors and kings and prominent people from around the world over the course of decades. It was first built, get this, in around 600 B.C. And had been uh, refitted a few times throughout history. Made of marble, mostly. The largest temple that we know of is bigger than any temples that existed in Athens, Greece, which is amazing because those were massive. But that was the most important thing in that city was the worship of this goddess named Artemis. The whole city uh, ran its business and social life around her. Uh, Social life, economic life, business life, political life, civil life. She was the hub of it all. And so when Paul goes into that city, he's... That's one of the things he's confronting is this false worship as he tries to bring the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so that's really at the heart of the story that we're going to see here today. It was several weeks ago where we left off in Acts 19. Just to remind you what happened. Paul goes into Ephesus, this very important city. God blesses him and allows him to stay there for a long period of time. He first has the privilege to preach in the synagogue for three months usually he'd preach one time in a synagogue and get chased out booted out thrown out dragged out so this was kind of rare that the jews in ephesus let him go on for three months but after three months they had it you're not welcome back anymore and then he started renting a a public school there apparently facility the school of tyrannus and he taught there every single day for over two years And he had people showing up. He had so many people showing up day after day after day after day that the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, and the reputation of Paul infiltrated the entire city of Ephesus so that now where we are today, after two years, everybody in this massive city of Ephesus knew who Paul was and knew his reputation for a lot of different reasons. God also gave him just an amazing ability to do extraordinary miracles. But also the word of God was going everywhere as disciples would come and they would believe and they'd go out and they would tell others. People would come and hear, they'd get mad, they'd get furious, and then they would go tell others and warn people. So that after two years, this passage says that everybody in Ephesus knew the word of God or knew about it, knew the gospel, knew who the apostle Paul was, had some weird, strange religion or Christianity. Not only that, two verses in this passage say that the word of God had gone out to all of Asia. That's the entire region surrounding Ephesus, including many other major keys. That would be uh, modern-day Turkey if you looked at a map. That is massive, and that's where the seven churches of uh, Revelation came from during this time. As well as Colossians, Hierapolis is another church. Uh, The seven churches of Asia, uh, of Revelation in Asia Minor. Laodicea, Thyatira, Smyrna, all those, Pergamum, they all got started during this time. So Paul's ministry was incredibly widespread, deep, and successful in the city of Ephesus, unlike any ministry he's had in any other city before. 
Another unique thing the Apostle Paul was privileged to do because he was here maybe in Ephesus almost three years, he was able to, to build not only a solid foundation of a new church, but also to raise up leadership so that by the time he has done almost three years in Ephesus, it says in the next chapter that Paul called all the elders of Ephesus to himself for a meeting. He had an elders meeting. And if it was like our elders meeting, it probably went on for five hours. And he, so that was awesome. That's something we haven't seen in all these other chat, uh, churches where he planted, where he was able to build up this very substantial leadership of elders. In Thessalonica, for two months, can't really establish much deep there while he's there. Also, while he was in Ephesus, he's writing letters of the New Testament. He's writing the Corinthians. He's writing the Romans. So he's writing epistles. He, he accomplished much during his ministry in Ephesus. Uh, the next chapter says, as he's talking to his elders at the elders meeting, his departure meeting, he said, let me remind you of how it was. From the first day that I set foot in the city, I was going uh, publicly and from house to house every single day proclaiming the fullness of the counsel of God with emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also I was working hard. I had a job. I was making my own money. I wasn't pilfering money from people. I was a beggar. I was living here and ministering sacrificially. I was trying to be an example to you. This is what he's saying to the elders. So this is a, a profoundly, deeply significant ministry in the city of Ephesus. And so being that Paul was there so long and being that Paul was so bold and so clear and upfront about why he was there, he just he was single focused, single minded. Uh, may I never boast in anything except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I I do one thing and I preach the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And that was his focus. And that's what he did. Boldly preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, uh, preaching truth, universal binding. Transcendent. Revealed from God, Christ-focused truth day after day after day after day. And when you do that, when you speak truth, especially gospel truth, and especially when you bring Jesus into it, like it says in verse 17 of chapter 19, the emphasis was on the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things always happen. When you have a biblical ministry and you are preaching the gospel and you are doing it boldly and you aren't doing it in a compromised manner and you are doing it clearly, consistently, day after day, there's always two results you get from sinners. You have progress and you have persecution. And that's exactly what happened with Paul. There was progress. As a matter, the progress we saw at the end of verse 20 in the last sermon, it says uh, there was a revival. Many in the city were throwing away their occultic things that they used to own. Because now they're Christians and born again. And it says in verse 20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Hallelujah. Reformation. We have revival. Mission accomplished. We are done. Let's sit down and have potato salad at the fellowship meal. Not. Because you do have progress, but also with the preaching of biblical truth and Christianity, you always have persecution. You always have resistance. That's why the title of the message today is Resistance to Biblical Ministry. And from 21 to 41 is a highlight or a vignette, very detailed, of resistance that Paul had during his ministry in Ephesus. This is the strongest resistance that he received from these people who did not want to hear it. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to know about Jesus. They didn't want to know about their sin. They didn't want their life made uncomfortable or disrupted or turned over. They don't like it. They get angry and they act accordingly. And this is this should not be a surprise to Christians. Jesus promised this. You will be persecuted. That is a promise. Jesus told his disciples of that. It says it in scripture. Uh, Jesus himself, I did not come to bring peace. But a sword. I did not come to bring, I didn't come into the world to bring peace, 
yet, but a sword, but division. I came to bring division. How do you bring division? By bringing the truth. The truth just automatically creates division. That's how it works. Many of you have this in your families at Thanksgiving and the Christmas dinner. If all your siblings, or just family members, many of whom are not saved. And you, you just speak truth, you're going to get in trouble. You just speak truth and start talking about Jesus and one way to heaven, and you're going to upset everybody's appetite for a dessert. That's what truth does. That's what Jesus meant. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that's just the byproduct of faithful biblical ministry. So inevitably, if Paul's there for two years with this extent of ministry, no doubt he is going to be facing resistance to his biblical ministry. So let's go ahead and look at the resistance that he did receive in Ephesus after two years of ministry. By the way, this is kind of a paradigm, or this is typical of the kind of resistance you're going to get with biblical ministry. If you're in, if you're doing, not just a pastor, I mean, if you're just a faithful Christian, this, this is kind of your roadmap. This is what's going to happen to you. Maybe this has already happened to you. Maybe this is currently happening to you. So six points, six principles regarding what resistance to biblical ministry looks like. Let's go ahead and We'll just read through the text section at a time and highlight some of the main points in this narrative. And we, we can learn from it. Even though it's a story, it's a true story, we can glean principles and actually apply those to our own life to formulate a complete worldview of what it means to be a Christian in a fallen and sinful world. So point number one, when it comes to resistance to biblical ministry, if you are faithful, many times your plans are foiled. Verses 21 to 23 your plans are for man uh, the apostle paul he was a man of of plan foresight he didn't do things just uh on the fly spontaneously he had great foresight he had short-term plans immediate term plans, but he also had long-term plans and in many of the epistles we can see that because he tells us what they are we saw already er earlier in the book of acts paul had a strategy he, he went on a short missionary trip then a longer one and then now the longest one on the third missionary journey but all the while he had desires he at the very beginning of his ministry he wanted to go to ephesus i want to go to ephesus and he tried and it said the spirit prevented him it's like oh well he had his human desire and god said no so his plans were foiled by circumstances or providentially by god himself but then god allows him eventually to get to Ephesus. But in verse 21 to 23, the main plan that Paul has at this point at the end of his two-year successful ministry in Ephesus is he now has, he's been thinking for years or a very long time, says Romans 15, as he's writing the Romans, I have been longing for a very long time to come and see you. This is about the time that he wrote Romans. So this has been in his brain for probably several years. And I want to go to the capital of the world. I want to go to Rome. And it, he hasn't been able to yet. His plans keep getting thwarted by circumstances. So when you're a missionary, rule number one, rule number two, and rule number three is flexibility. Flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. And that's what Paul modeled so well. So let's go ahead and look at it. So after this revival, verse 21, things are looking good. Now after these things, after the revival and the people in the city are changed from sin to Christ, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, so he makes his plans public. Okay, I want to go down to Jerusalem. And after that, after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So these were his immediate plans. Um, 
I want to go back through the churches of Greece to the west. Macedonia. That means the churches he planted there. That would be Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. I want to go back to those churches, visit the saints, and, and mainly to collect money from them to take it to Jerusalem where the saints are deprived. There's a famine. They're being persecuted. They have an immediate need. So I want to go to Macedonia, Philippi, collect from them and give it to the, the saints in Jerusalem. Not only that, I want to go to Achaia, which is the church of Corinth. I want to go to the Corinthians and get money from them as well. Take a collection, take it to the saints who are in Jerusalem. That's what he's thinking. And then after I go to Jerusalem uh, and take them the offering, then I want to go on a next, another missionary journey to Rome. And we know from Romans. So, And then when, once he got to Rome, then he wanted to go to Spain, which was the furthest part of the Roman Empire in that day. Rome, 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. Spain, that he mentions in Romans 15, 1,900 miles from Jerusalem. This is mind-boggling. No airplanes, no modern travel. But these were his desires, and they get foiled somewhat. Verse 22, got his plans, sets it in motion, and having sent into Macedonia, that would be Philippi, Thessalonica, two of those who ministered to him, very faithful, Timothy and Erastus. That's exactly what Timothy did. Timothy went to Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, on behalf of Paul, telling people, save money, save up money. Paul's coming. We're going to take it to Jerusalem to relieve the saints. Uh, while he did that, he himself stayed in Asia, there in Turkey, and in Ephesus for a while. Paul lets us know in another epistle that he wanted to stay in Ephesus until uh, the feast day that was coming up to celebrate that, but that also got foiled for a while. Verse 23, and about that time, this is where his plans get foiled. At about that time, when there's a revival, plans are being made, he sends out his emissaries, he's got a grand scheme, next thing in line, and that all just gets blown up. Verse 23, and about that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Just at that time, uh, the city just blew up. No, no small disturbance means a riot broke out. A massive citywide dangerous riot and this spoiled everything and the pro why did they break out in a riot because of the way what's the way verse 9 of chapter 19 the way is christianity christianity also in the book of acts chapter 9 uh, when saul was persecuting christianity it says he was persecuting the way so three times in the book of acts christianity is called the way and that was a term of derision probably from the critics because Paul would go out and say Jesus is the only way. And so maybe to mock them, oh, the way. You're the only way. You're the sole way. There's only one way. And so that's what's going on here. They're mocking Christianity. And people are upset at Christianity. They're upset at Paul. It blows up. And his immediate plans are foiled or changed. Hence, he needs to be flexible and trust God. So much for going to Rome when he wants to go. By the way, God gets him to Rome except in a way that Paul never conceived. Paul wanted to go to Rome on his own initiative according to his timetable, according to the route that he wanted to take with his missionary team. That did not happen. Paul ends up going to Rome as a prisoner in chains, almost dying on the way. But God got him to Rome. Be careful about the ultimate desires of your heart. God, this is what I want because God may get you there, but not the way you want it. He does that all the time. 
plans are foiled. Uh, and then resistance mounts, and that's point number two. Gossip spreads, 24 to 27. Well, what was this disturbance all about? Why are people so upset? Well, here's the deal, verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, Demetrius, very influ- influ- influential man in the city, knew a lot of people. He was a networker. He was a businessman. He was probably filthy rich. He was a manipulator. Uh, he knew how to use the people and work the people and work the system. He was probably the union boss in the city. He knew all, he was a, by way of profession, he was a, he worked with, he was an artisan who worked with metal and silver in particular. And his profession was making uh, relics and probably small miniature places where the goddess Artemis could be worshipped. And he would make these out of silver and then he would sell them for a gross filthy prophet. So he's using religion to make a buck. That still goes on today. This is Demetrius. He is not a a good man. Remember, Paul's been there for over two years. He knows who Paul is. He's seen Paul operate. He's heard Paul's public sermons. He has utter disdain for Paul. We need to shut this guy down. We need to shut his mouth. And the only thing Paul does, he just preaches. That's all he does. Not breaking any laws. They had uh, the amendment of freedom of speech, apparently in Ephesus and in the Roman Empire. So Paul wasn't breaking any laws. So Demetrius, he was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, this false, grotesque goddess. If you did a Google of Artemis, you'd get this disgusting-looking female creature that they thought was a real goddess made by the hands of finite, sinful men. Anyway... His business was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So uh, that was one of the main ways to bring in money in the city was over religion and making idols and amulets and probably necklaces and earrings. Get your earrings hanging down with silver Artemis on each ear. People were paying money. People were coming to town for that. People came from all over the world to worship at the Temple of Artemis. They also had like an Olympic Games in their city that was one of the cities. And that also uh, brought a lot of people from all over the world and a lot of money, souvenirs, very lucrative business. And Paul, for two years, has been evangelizing. People are getting saved. And people who used to worship in the temple of Artemis have gotten saved. And now they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. They don't need the temple of Artemis anymore. So no doubt they got rid of all their statues They don't go to the temple of artism anymore. They're not buying things from Demetrius anymore. And he's losing money. It hits him right in the pocketbook. That's what really hurts for him. So he will take it no longer. He sees what's going on. And so he had a plan. It's all about gossip. Um, Verse 25. So what did he do? He was was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So the craftsmen he gathered in the guild, kind of like a union today, he gathered these men who were all in this business together with the workmen of similar trades. And he said, men, and here's where the gossip begins. Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. This is how we make a buck. This is our living. It's like the drug dealer saying, this is, this is how we do it. We make money through uh, selling marijuana over the border. We make money through the crack that we sell. We make money uh, through the cocaine that we sell. You know this. We make money through the illegal uh, guns that we sell. The liquor we sell, as the mafia would do. And they're cutting into our business. These wholesome, moral people. 
verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, see, there's the reputation of Paul throughout the whole city, has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people. So a lot of people got saved in Ephesus so much that it had a major impact. There was a revival. And what was Paul saying? He's saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And this guy can't believe it. Can you believe that guy, Paul, saying that these things we're making with our own hands aren't gods? Well, at least he got the right message because Paul did say that. There weren't many gods. There was one God. His name was Yahweh, and he literally came down to earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, 100% God, 100% man. Only one God, only one way to salvation. Verse 27. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. People worship Artemis from all over the world, and, and now it's going to be undercut and undermined. And, oh, poor Artemis, our goddess, we've got to help her, which is the antithesis of Christianity. We don't say, oh, God, we've got to help you. God, we need not. We can't help God. He needs no help. He's totally self-sufficient, totally all-powerful, totally omnipotent, totally sovereign. We are pathetic and lowly and finite and fragile. But this is their God. Their God needs training wheels. Their God needs a help. So we've got to help Artemis out. She'll be regarded as worthless. And that she whom all of Asia, the whole world worship, should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Boy, it sounds like Paul's more powerful than Artemis the goddess. One guy can do all this. How ironic. So there it is. He plants the seed of gossip. The seed of gossip. And gossip, uh, Proverbs talks about it as well as other passages. The seed of gossip, because of the sinfulness in man, and because Satan, who likes to water the seeds of gossip and maintain and protect the seeds of gossip and foster and perpetuate the seeds of gossip, gossip always seems to spring up and do its dirty, nasty, strangling work in the unbelieving world and also get this in the church among Christians. Pretty sad. It's horrible. Paul calls it cancer. That's what it is. So that's verse 27. Gossip begins to spread. Number three, and then gossip does its work. It's kind of the evolution that gossip, gossip takes on when it's allowed, when it's not stamped out immediately. Verse 28. People, people listen to the gossip. They entertain. Then they be immediately begin to quit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. doesn't matter who it is. Could be your friend. Could be your pastor. Could be someone you used to trust. Family member. And you start literally entertaining that? Because of your sin and the deception of Satan, many times gossip will get the best of you if you don't just shut it down. And if you entertain it, begin to mull on it and think, and then, oh, yeah, and then you take sides. Then what does that do? Then you, oh, how dare they? It immediately turns into anger. That's number three, anger brews. Bruce, see, you haven't voiced it yet. It's, it's internal. It's percolating. It's like the pressure cooker. Slow. Brewing. Starts out with a little thought, and then it just takes over your whole mind. Then it consumes you. And then you lose sleep. And then it's all you think about. And then you're thinking ill of another person. You haven't even talked to them yet. You don't even have the truth, necessarily. And you are just swallowed up. In gossip that leads to taking over your emotions and the dominant emotion usually is anger when gossip is involved. Verse 28. 
And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. Art Demetrius was very influential. Anger brews. That's number three. Gossip spreads, then anger brews. Verse 28. Filled with rage. Then they, they couldn't hold in their rage anymore. They had to just speak up. And they began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is our false god. Great is our false. And they're screaming this out publicly at their little union meeting. Well, as the anger continues to grow, the frustration continues to mount. There's no accountability to shut down gossip. It just keeps doing its festering work. And it goes from gossip to anger. And then it gets, and then it manifests itself, not just with words, but in attacks. And that's number four. The attacks will follow. Sometimes the attacks can be physical, where they at times have grabbed Paul, dragged him out of the city after their anger. Or it can just be verbal. For us today, it can be uh, nasty things written about you. It can be nasty emails or blogs written about you. At the Shepherds Conference, I think it was three years ago, somebody at break time with those 4,000 men there wrote some just nasty stuff at the Grace Community Church uh, bathroom, like on the mirror. I don't know if they grabbed, <laughs> took a, like a knife and just some nasty slander about John MacArthur because he didn't like his view that he was preaching. See, that's anger manifesting itself and attacks ensue. Verse 29, and the city was, so this goes to the city. So then they start talking and the word goes out, the, the uninformed, ignorant, fickle mob. They talk to them. They win them over very quickly. It's easy to do. Then all of a sudden, the whole city is filled with confusion because of the gossip that's spreading out and the anger and they're catering or they're appealing to local patriotism, our local religion, our local economy, these bottom line common denominators that supposedly we have in common. This is all being threatened. So you put people on edge and defensive and they are candidates for accepting gossip with the spread of lies. That's what happened. That's how, you, that's how you create a mob. There's, a, there's books that have been written on mob psychology for years. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed. So the, the whole crowd rushed with one accord in unison into the theater that was close by. It was an outdoor amphitheater carved in the side of the mountain, seating over 25,000 people. You can go visit it today. You can see it on Google. It's there. And they just rushed into this massive theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus. These were two companions of the Apostle Paul. Couldn't find Paul. That's who they wanted to kill. But instead, let's just drag his buddies. And they dragged them literally into this theater. Just a mass tumult. And it's getting hot and it is getting violent. And it is public. And it's midday. And it's in this theater. The attacks ensue. Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And usually when you have these massive uh, mob scenes, this is not exercising your amendment to freedom of speech. This is violence. These are mobs. That's what's going on here. Typical in a mob, whether it's you know on the day of a presidential inauguration or uh, people are just protesting, Occupy Wall Street. I remember going down to San Francisco and just seeing a block of all these people that were protesting for Occupy Wall Street, and they were there in their tents for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I went down there. I'm just interacting and commiserating. Those people, they don't have a clue why they're there. 
I'm angry. What are you angry about? And then they couldn't tell you. Because everybody else, because that guy over there is angry. And I don't have a job. I don't have anything to do. And I dropped out of school. And I want to be on television. That's why I'm angry. They don't even know why they're there. This is so typical of a flash mob. That's why verse 29 says they were filled with confusion. They don't know what's going on. But everybody, everybody else is doing it. I'll rush over there. It's like I remember when the Chicago Bulls won the world championship for the first time with Michael Jordan. And how did the city of Chicago celebrate? They went and how, they had a, a mob riot in the city and began smashing windows in Chicago celebrating that their Chicago Bulls won the world championship and turning upside down cars over upside down and burning the city. And then when the Lakers won their world championship, same thing in Los Angeles. Let's throw a riot. Well, that's the sinfulness of people. Confusion rules. The city was filled with the confusion. They rushed, uh, attacked Paul's companions. Verse 30, let's go there. 30 to 34. The attacks, and then there's confusion. Verse 30, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly. So Paul sees this uh, flame up. He hears about the mob. He probably sees it. He sees his friend. He's particularly concerned about his friends and traveling companions. And Paul is courageous. He doesn't fear anything half the time. And he wants to go into this mob and rescue his two buddies and probably talk to this crowd and address them and tell them the truth that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. That is admirable. His courage is admirable, but at this point it was not smart. It wasn't practical. The disi- his disciples wouldn't let him. No way, Paul, you ain't going in there. If you go there, you're going to get killed. I thought you wanted to go to Rome and Spain. I thought you wanted to relieve the saints in Jerusalem. If you're dead, you can't do that. There's a time to run. There's a time to be bold and be courageous. And there was a time to run. Jesus did that. Early on in his ministry in Luke 4, he ran from those trying to kill him. He did. Ran and, and hid. Then later on in his ministry, no, it's time. Go ahead. Take me. Arrest me. So you have to be in tune with God's spirit with respect to the timing. Uh, not only his disciples, but there were citizens there in the city of Ephesus who weren't even Christians probably. Maybe they were, uh, but they were native to the city, and they became friends with Paul and respected him because he was a Roman citizen probably. Verse 31. And also some of the Asiarchs, they're the leading, cities, uh, the leading citizens of the city, uh, became friends of Paul. They also sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Don't go into that mob. So you've got... His friends, and then you've also got these people he met in the city. Don't do it. That is not smart. I remember a friend of mine uh, with the L.A. riots back, man, 20, 30 years ago. I think it was over. I can't even remember what it was. The, the verdict that was made on Rodney King or something like that, and then just a mob sprang up. And, and then I had a friend of mine who went into the city to witness and pass out tracts. He got killed. He got beat up on the street. They beat him to a bloody pulp kicked his head in. I don't even know why they were doing it. Then he ended up in the hospital in a coma, and I went to go visit him. And then shortly after, he died and went to heaven. Verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. There it is. There, That's a typical mob. Probably maybe students from Berkeley. No, I'm just kidding. If you don't get that joke, you're not watching the news. But anyway, that's a mob. Some of the crowd concluded, well, maybe it was Alexander's fault. He was a, a Jew. Maybe it's the Jews' fault. So they, the Jews shove him forward. 
And having motioned with his hand, Alexander tries to address the crowd. Alexander was intending to make a defense of the assembly. But when they rec- the Ephesians recognized that he was a Jew, that monotheist who, who doesn't believe in Artemis, we're not listening to that guy. Shut that guy up. So with a single cry arose from the massive crowd from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great. They did that for two hours, just one mantra. Great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Could they do that for two solid hours out there in public standing up, just shouting at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is... Is that even humanly possible? Yes. Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. That's what the Germans did, hours on end in their public gatherings. When I was in Denver just a few months ago, out on the street in the middle of downtown, right there in midday, standing up, a group of 30 people, for hours on end, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare... They do that for three to four hours. That's what they're doing. Artemis of the... They're just trying to shut them down. Well, after two hours, somebody else takes charge. Alexander was not affected. By the way, so go to number six. Drama subsides. After confusion rules, drama subsides. Not drama's resolved, but it subsides. It, it always does. 35 to 41. Uh, where it says Alexander dismissed the assembly, go ahead and change that to the town clerk dismissed the assembly. Or you could literally put the mayor dismissed the assembly. That was my fault, typo. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with Alexander. So finally, the mayor takes over. The mayor, he's like elected each year. He is in charge. He has to report to Rome. Rome had basically one rule for all these cities all over the world, and that is you can do whatever you want, have your own religions as long as you worship Caesar. And also, we don't want any civil unrest. So you need to keep order in your city. We will not tolerate this kind of uh, violence and mobs and vigilantism they, they just wouldn't tolerate it so the mayor knows uh-oh people are gonna hit, rome's gonna hear about this i gotta shut this down we've got to quell this mob and so that's what he intends to do verse 35 and after quieting the multitude the town clerk or the mayor said men of athens so he's a known man he's probably a respected man by many many probably voted for him finally he gets up the courage to shut this down And apparently they listened to him. What man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So he's appealing to the common denominator. We are all in love with Artemis. We have great respect. We're a great city. Let's act accordingly. Verse 36. Since then, since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and don't do anything rash. Stop it. 37. For you have brought these men here, these two Christians, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. This is amazing. you got some pagan mayor in the city who knows what Paul's been doing, and he concludes, Christians, they're innocent. They haven't raised mobs. They haven't caused disturbance. They're not going out on street corners with signs and picketing Artemis. Down with Artemis. Down with Artemis. They're not chaining themselves with uh, locks to the front temple door of Artemis, keeping people from getting in, making a public spectacle. They've actually been very quiet, obedient, submissive, civil citizens. That's a good testimony of a Christian. And the mayor acknowledges that. They haven't been... They haven't been uh, a detriment to our city. They are not lawbreakers. That's a great testimony of biblical Christianity. 
They haven't done anything wrong. Verse 38, so then if Demetrius, the complainer and instigator, and the craftsmen who are with him, who have started this riot, have a complaint against these two Christian guys or Paul or Christians, then the courts are in session, as are the proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Let's do it the right way, the legal way, the civil way, the quiet way, the laid out way that's legitimate. And the, class, the, the crowd listens. Uh, verse 39, but if you want anything beyond this, if it's a severe crime that they've committed, then it shall be settled in the lawful assembly that meets three times a year in the city of Ephesus before the city council. So you have legal recourse. Knock it off. Verse 44, indeed, we are in danger of being accused of riot. And it's going to get word in Rome in connection with today's affairs. Since there is no real cause for it, they are innocent. They are not guilty. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. You're going to get me in trouble. I like my cushy mayor's office. Maybe that's what he said. Verse 41. And after saying this, he dismissed. He dismissed the assembly. They complied. Hence, things calmed down. Things weren't necessarily resolved, but things did calm down. And probably Paul and the Christians were able to go ahead and do public ministry for just a little bit longer. Actually, for a lot longer there in Ephesus because a church was planted, and we know that church lasted at least until the end of the first century when uh, the, the book of Revelation was written, where Christianity was to allow to flourish in that area. So in light of that, here's just three principles we can glean from this passage to apply to us before we go into communion. Uh, three principles from this to apply to us. Number one, true ministry focuses on the word, the word of God, the gospel, chapter 19, verse 20, focuses on Jesus and on holy living. 1937, they lived, these Christians were above reproach. True ministry focuses on the word, Jesus, and holy living. Number two, the gospel is the only thing that changes sinners. Not picketing, protests, civil disobedience, vigilantism, organized boycotts, public spectacles. Whenever Christians get their big picket signs out and they walk around in front of a like town hall and shouting things and uh, the councilman, city councilman's of the devil and blah, blah, all this stuff, they, they just make a pathetic scene of a testimony. Whereas it's not the outside that needs to change, it's the inside. Why don't you befriend some of these people or at least witness to some of these people on an individual basis, let God change them from the inside out. That's how God brings real change. And then finally, number three, the gospel or truth always causes a reaction. Always causes a reaction, either progress or persecution. Well, with that, we have the privilege to... Celebrate communion now. So if I could get our uh, ushers and servants of communion ready. I, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 11. I just want to read that passage before we partake of communion. Uh, communion, we use little pieces of bread and, and grape juice. Drink from the fruit of the vine. And Jesus took the bread and the cup to his 11 apostles and said, this bread and this cup represent me and my ministry for you, that I'm going to die for you, that I will raise again from the grave for you, that I'm dying, my blood is being shed for you, that your sins might be forgiven by God. And, and then I'm going to go to heaven. And as long as I am gone in heaven until I return again, I want the church, I want you disciples to continually celebrate communion with bread and the cup. And every time you do, it's a time of celebration. It's a time of thanksgiving for sin time of remembering what Jesus did dying on our behalf. It's a time of 
thanking God for forgiveness of sin through the person of Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian, then you are invited to take communion. And uh, as the that plate comes around, just go ahead and grab one of those cups, and inside that one cup it's got the bread and the drink. Hold that, and we'll take it together in just a moment. We'll partake together. And while they're passing those out, just a couple of words about the meaning of the bread and the cup in communion from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, the Lord Jesus revealed this to Paul when you meet together. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night uh, in which he was betrayed, he took bread as a symbol. So when you eat the bread, it's, there's no nothing really mystical going on here. And when you, when you eat the bread, Jesus is not forgiving you of all the sins you committed last week because you're eating the bread or drinking the cup. Jesus forgave all of your sins when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. How's that possible? Uh, it's a miracle. And then when you come to know him personally and you ask him to be your savior and you understand what that means, he forgives he applies that death that he did 2,000 years ago to your life. And you. he adopts you into his family. He loves you. He forgives all your sin. And sins you commit in the future, he will continue to forgive. But he also wants you to have a sensitive heart towards your sin with the help of the Holy Spirit. This is what we're celebrating. This is a, a done, objective reality. Christ dying for us. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he passed out the bread and he said, this is my body. This represents my body. This represents who I am, the Lord Jesus. This represents my life. This represents me hanging on the cross for you as a substitute for your sin. That's what he meant. Which is for you. Eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup also, probably red wine after supper, looked like blood, saying this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This represents my death for you. God hates sin and requires death as a penalty for sin. That's what the cup represents. Do this. Drink it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So we're proclaiming the Lord's death on our behalf, but we're also proclaiming that he's coming again. And we look forward to that, his blessed return. Therefore, uh, when you eat it, eat it in a worthy manner. Don't do it in an unworthy manner, a flippant manner. Examine yourself, verse 28, your own heart before Almighty God, confessing sin, admitting sin, and thanking Him for forgiveness of sin. If you eat and drink in a worthy manner, God will bless you. If you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, we suffer the consequences of God's chastening as a heavenly parent. So it, it really is a time of gratitude, thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your life and your death on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. We also thank you for the blessed hope that the Lord Jesus is going to come again in the future. We don't know when to make all things right. And we will be with him in glory forever and ever. That is what communion is all about. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, eat in his name and drink in his name. And let's do likewise. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. 
For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.